Good afternoon. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Uh, it's good to see everybody. As you know, and as I know, it is uh, it's grand final day. And so if I see anybody on their smartphones, I will know what you're doing. <laughs> Sam, why do you look so guilty already? <laughs> no, I'm saying great, Oh, okay, I see, I see. <laughs> Actually, I might just hold that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's great to see everybody. Um, if you got Jin Ha's um, wonderful newsletter in the middle of the in the middle of the week, uh, the sermon title was originally uh, supposed to be "You Need a Haircut," and um, it has turned to okay. Well, it's still "You Need a Haircut," <laughs> but uh, the, the idea or the sermon title that I kind of changed it to was uh, "Managing Managing the Gray," managing the gray. Now, when I grew up, I used to hate haircuts, hated haircuts, and the reason why is because uh, when I was first born, my hair was quite straight, and then for some reason after I hit about five or six years old, uh, my hair started to become curly, and as you can tell, I have curly hair right now, but it used to be just straight, very straight, and then just bald haircut from about, ever since I could remember all the way to like year four in, in, in primary school, and then everything changed. And I think just our side of the family is cursed with that gene. Uh, my brother was born with straight hair, and then after he was five or six years old, uh, then he got curly hair, and we don't know why. My dad has curly hair. My brother had a son, and he was born with straight hair, and then after four years old, it curled right up, and uh, we, we just don't know why. So Micah has straight hair right now, and I'm just kind of hoping that he's got mama's side of the um, mama's genes. And uh, anyway, it's just, it's easier to deal with your hair when it's straight. And maybe I'm just, maybe I think too much about my hair. <laughs> anyway, so here's what would happen. I would go to the barber shop, and I thought I knew this is how I want my hair to look. And I would tell the barber, this is what I want. And the barber would say, nah, nah, that's not going to look good. Just, just trust me. And I'm kind of like, well, you're the pro, so you do whatever you want. And after every haircut, I just hated it. And so, what I learned how to do was, uh, I met somebody who cut his own hair. And I was like, hey, can you teach me how to cut my hair? And so he taught me how to cut my hair. And so for the last six years, I have been cutting my own hair. And so even for a wedding, um, I cut my own hair, and I was like, oh man, if I make a mistake, this is gonna be the worst thing ever. And uh, anyway, so, um, actually I had a friend who helped fade, so that was good. So if it looks good in the pictures, because I had some help. So anyway, that's my story with haircuts. Now, in the Bible, there's a story of the world's worst haircut, and, uh, and as you can guess, it's the story of Samson. So, if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13, and what I'm going to do is, for the sake of time, I'm just going to narrate, I'm going to do my best to narrate um, most of this story. And so, uh, Judges, as you know, is a book of uh, a history in the time of Israel when they're going through obedience and disobedience and each time they uh, disobey there's a time of rebellion and they call out to God for help and God sends a deliverer and so we come through this place where Israel is in a, a place of disobedience and God sends a deliverer in Samson and if you look at the first uh, few verses we're just going to look at verses 2 to 4 um, there's an explanation of how Samson comes into the world and so Samson is born to a, uh, a mother who is barren. She's not able to have children. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord comes to her and he says, um, you are going to have a child. 
And so he gives specific instructions, and I want to bring your attention to those instructions. So if you want to skim from verses 2 to 4, I'm going to be focusing on, uh, okay, just verse 4. And it says here that uh, Samson, throughout his life, is not supposed to drink any wine or any similar type drink. And so no fermented drink, no alcoholic beverages, and that the, the way in which alcohol was processed back then... Um, used a specific uh, substance called leaven, and it was kind of the symbol of sin. And so God had commanded uh, Samson's mother, don't let him touch any of this, and you're not supposed to drink it too. And so we continue on. So that's the first rule that they, uh, that Samson's parents are given. The second rule is that Samson is not allowed to cut his hair at all. And so the angel says no razor is even supposed to touch his hair. So can you imagine the guy being like 60 years old and, I don't know, like that would be a pretty big mess, but yeah, that was the rule. The third rule, um, Samson was not allowed to eat any unclean food, and he was basically committed to something called the vow of a Nazarite, the vow of the Nazarite. And so here is one of the few examples in the Bible where there's an individual who has to take this lifelong vow of abstinence from... Um, alcohol from unclean foods he's not allowed to cut his hair and he is forever committed to this uh, I guess this vow or this ritual now there's another chapter Numbers chapter 6 and if you want to turn there we're going to come back to Judges so if you keep your hand in Judges we're going to go to Numbers and we're going to look at Numbers chapter 6 and this whole chapter is dedicated to the vow of the Nazarite and explains what the vow is I'm taking liberties to um, simplify the vow. So, I've taken the liberties to simplify uh, the, the vow, but if you want, once again, if you'd like to skim, you're allowed to. So, verse 2, the vow is gender inclusive. It says both men and women can take the vow, and the vow was a very special type of rite, and it was kind of like this dedication to God, and the person was basically seen as holy, and so it was a very special type of a vow. So, it's gender inclusive. Um, verse 3 says that uh, they're not, the person who takes the vow is not allowed to uh, take in any wine uh, or anything that's fermented, no vinegar from wine or, or anything from fermented sources. Then it continues on by saying, no grape juice, and by the way, no fresh grapes, and by the way, no raisins, and nothing from the grapevine. And so it's kind of like, just avoid the whole thing. Then, uh, in the subsequent verses, it says, uh, don't cut the hair, as we're familiar with. And then uh, one of the last little, uh, I guess, parts of the vow is that the individual is not allowed to go near any dead bodies. And if a family member dies, you're actually not supposed to or not allowed to go to the funeral. If you're taking the vow, you're supposed to say, I'm sorry, I can't go. I've had them taking the vow of the Nazarite. And so this vow was generally a, a short-term vow. They would set a specific time. They would commit themselves to the vow, and they would follow, follow these practices. So quite a peculiar vow. Um, I want to share with you a few uh, observations about this vow. Before I do that, let me finish off about what, what the vows are about. Uh, so the second part of the vow is if somebody breaks the vow. Okay? So in verses 10 and 11, it says, if you break a vow, you're supposed to offer a sacrifice, and basically that sacrifice is communicating, I'm sorry, I've goofed up. Here's a sacrifice. And in verse 12, the person is supposed to start over 
and if they've set a specific number of days, they basically start back to zero and they have to do the vow over again. And so um, it's not an indefinite thing, but it's just set over a period of time. Now, the one case where the person is to restart the vow is if they accidentally come across a dead corpse. In other words, let's say there's like oxen that are crossing the road and then a little dog runs across and gets run over by the oxen, but you're the shepherd, then you've come in contact accidentally with a dead corpse, you have then been considered as you just broke the vow, and you have to cut your hair, which means, yep, I broke the vow, and then you start over again. And so, um, yeah, very, very, it's a very strict uh, kind of a vow. So, here are a few observations about the vow. One, uh, the vow is temporary, and two, the vow was supposed to symbolize a person had completely dedicated or they were submitting their lives to God. So if you look at Numbers chapter 6, verse 7, the last half of it, it says, because his separation to God is on his head. And so when a person would grow out their hair, people would just automatically assume, oh, you're taking the vow of the Nazarite, and you are dedicating not just your head, but your whole body to God. And so there's this... There's this a message of submission. I'm growing my hair out, and I'm submitting myself to God. I am owned, basically. That's kind of what the vow is supposed to uh, communicate. Um, and so, basically, there's an outward, uh, there's an outward communication that's supposed to communicate uh, inward consistency uh, between one's submission to God and one's heart uh, commitment to God. And so, the reason why the rules are so strict is because they're saying, listen. Even if by accident you break the vow, you are basically saying, sorry, I messed up, and I goofed, even if it's an accident. And basically, there's no backup plan for somebody who would just willfully break. You know, have you ever um, had a New Year's resolution, and you're thinking, I'm just, I'm not going to eat any more, but it can fill in the blank. And you're like, ah, just one. And this vow is like, there's none of that. So there's no room for backup plan, and it's just assumed you're not going to break the vow. And so that's why it's so serious. And so at the chance that something dead comes in front of you, that's considered a mess up. And so anyway, gives you a picture of um, the mindset of this vow. So um, the reason why it's so strict is because in the context of the Nazarite vow, God is making a gray area black and white. And this is specifically, I think, has to do with morality. And a lot of things in life where you can say there's a gray area, the vow of the Nazarite is specifically dealing with morality. And, and, and I'll explain why here, or hopefully it'll become evident as we continue on in the story. And so that's why when God says no wine, he also says no raisins. And it's kind of like What's the connection between wine and raisins? Raisins aren't fermented. You're not going to get drunk off of raisins. And he's just kind of like, black and white, no, don't touch it. And so there's this, there's this sense of uh, strictness. And, okay. So, we continue on, and we see that there is uh, importance that is placed on this vow. And so, if somebody were to break the vow, everybody would know they cut, the person cut their hair, and they're communicating, listen, uh, I am not hiding the fact that I've messed up in this vow. And it's communicating, I goofed, I'm starting over again. Okay, so here's what happens at the end of the vow. When the vow is finished, the person goes to the temple. They have fulfilled their time uh, 
in their, in their commitment to God, they cut their hair and they basically place it with an offering called a well-being offering. Um, or another word for it is called a peace offering. Now, this word well-being, it's not just, or the word peace is not just an absence of conflict. Um, the, the Hebrew word is shalom. It's kind of like this complete wellness. And so just for the sake of humoring me, if you all can say shalom on three. One, two, three. Shalom. shalom. Okay, cool. And so a person would finish the vow, and they would communicate, I have experienced shalom. And so what they do is they cut the hair, because the hair belongs to God, and they put it with the sacrifice, and they burn everything. Now, when I say burn everything, they burn a portion of the meat, and then they um, burn all their hair. Now, here's what happens with the sacrifice. Usually, in Israelite, uh, in the Israelite religion, or in the Israelite sanctuary service, they would... Um, with each of the sacrifices, they would completely give the sacrifice to the temple. Like, they would confess their sins, they would kill the lamb, and they would give the sacrifice to the temple. And they wouldn't keep any of it. But the well-being offering was the one offering where they actually kept back a part of it, and they ate the well-being offering, and then they would burn one-third of it, and then the other part of it they would give to the priests. And so this was the one sacrifice where they would partake of it. And there's an explanation as to why this took place. And here it says, When the vow is finished, God and the offerer shared the sacrifice as if they ate a meal together to celebrate the peace and fellowship between them. Through Christ's sacrifice, we can have a peaceful relationship with God. And Christ invites us to fellowship with Him. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. And there are several times in the New Testament where Jesus says something like, eat me, or he says something like, uh, when they're practicing communion, this is my flesh, you have to eat it, you're partaking of it. And the reason why is because love is best communicated in community. And so God is saying, you need me to teach you love, to show you love, and you give love as well. And you experience that um, best in community. And so partaking of the sacrifice is basically saying, um, you understand and experience that. Now there's a second part of the well-being offering that is important to consider. Uh, the well-being offering shows us that our fellowship with God does not always need to focus on the negative side of atonement uh, and reconciliation, which has to do with getting rid of sins that come between us and God. We can grow closer and closer to God even at times when we do not sin and thus do not need forgiveness. But we should remember that even the positive side of atonement, including joyful praise and thanksgiving to God and peaceful fellowship with Him, is possible only because of Christ's sacrifice. Although well-being offerings did not atone for sinful actions, their blood nevertheless served to ransom the lives of those who offered them. And that the, the well-being offering is explained in Leviticus 17, uh, verses 5 to 12. So, it's basically saying... A lot of times we experience God in our failures and we say, God, be merciful to me, and we experience God when he saves us. But the point of the vow of the Nazarite was supposed to be this dedication of victory and saying, I am going to fulfill uh, this commitment to God and I'm going to be victorious at the end of it. And in that victory, there's also a way where we connect with God and we say, I understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Because as humans... We are prone to failure more than victory and success. And so um, here there's this one practice where somebody would say, I'm going to take this vow and I'm going to commit this period of time of my life to God. Now imagine being Samson. 
He is supposed to be a Nazarite his whole life. And so my question is, how would you feel if you had to dedicate yourself to the vow of the Nazarite? And it's not so much the rules, but it's the implications of those rules. I think I'd pretty much be bald my whole life. And so, anyway, imagine being in Samson's shoes. And so, with this knowledge of the vow, we're going to look at the story of Samson, and we're just going to look at one um, episode of Samson's life and see how he did in terms of dealing with this vow. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Judges. And we're going to look at Judges chapter uh, 14. And this is the first episode. Now what takes place is Samson begins to grow up. Now, here's a side note, and it gives you a little bit of a picture of Samson's upbringing. Samson's name means son. Not S-O-N, but S-U-N. And so... Uh, the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mother and says, your child is going to deliver Israel and basically going to be a representative of God. And she's like, I know, I'll name him after a pagan god. So it's kind of like, you know, Mary naming Jesus Zeus instead of Jesus. So it's kind of like this interesting, an interesting name for Samson. And so Samson has this name and uh, the Bible says that the Lord blesses him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move on him, and it gives him geographical locations. And so, Samson at this point in time realizes he has been endowed with this special gift. And as you know, his gift is strength. And he is just super human. I mean, this guy is really, really, really strong. And at a young age, he begins to realize, hey, uh, my hair is growing longer, and I'm getting stronger as, as a result of this. And so... Samson begins to explore a bit, and in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. And so that word is very important because several times in the story of Samson, he sees something and he thinks, I want that. And he begins to gratify uh, the desires that he has. And so he sees this woman, he goes to his family, and he says, Mom, Dad, I've met this woman in Timnah, she's beautiful, and I want her as a wife. And his parents aren't really excited because God gave Samson the uh, responsibility to free Israel. So the Philistines, the people in Timnah, are his enemies, and yet he's like, I want to marry that person. And so there's a bit of a dilemma there. And so his parents are kind of not happy about it initially, and then the dad decides, okay, well, I'll get her for you. And so if you look at verses... Uh, five, it says that Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and his mother. And if you keep reading, there's this bit of information that's missing between verses 5 and 6. It says, Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a goat, though he had nothing in his hands. But he did not tell his father or his mother what had been done. Now here's my question. If your mom and your dad travel with you down to Timnah and you meet a lion and you kill it, how do you not tell your mom and your dad if they're with you? And the answer is, he left them in the dust. So he's going down to Timnah, they're not with him, and he's like, all right, see you guys later. And he just goes, and then he meets this lion and he kills the lion. And so it's kind of like, it gives you a little picture of the family dynamic there. There's a lot of independence in this family, right? And so um, here's the first bit of gray area. Um, oh, and you know what? I missed this slide, but it's worth uh, looking at. There's a difference between uh, the vow that was given to the, the rules that were given to Samson and the vow of the Nazarite. And the one difference is the, the how a person is supposed to interact with dead corpses. 
And so with Samson, he's supposed to free the people of Israel. And so um, basically God doesn't give him that rule. Hey, um, if you come in contact with a dead corpse, you have to cut your hair. Because he's going to have to kill people. And so um, he would be very bald and very weak a lot of the time. And so it just doesn't make sense. And so anyway, this is interesting because the vow of the Nazarite is supposed to be black and white. And yet there's a gray area inside of this, inside of this vow. So Samson kills this lion, right? And there's a dead corpse in his hands, and the Bible specifically says he doesn't tell his parents. And so my question is, why wouldn't he tell his parents if it didn't matter? And so he's not given this rule, and there's a bit of gray area, but he chooses not to say anything. So the story continues on after verse 6. He goes back a second time to visit this woman in Timnah, and it says that he looks and he sees the dead lion that he has killed, and there are a swarm of honeybees inside of the carcass. And what he does is he reaches inside of the dead lion, and he grabs the honey out, and he starts eating it. Um, So, here it says, don't eat any unclean food. That would definitely count as unclean food if you've got honey and it's dripping all over your hands, and there's some lion guts in there, it's probably not clean. <laughs> and unclean is just, it's a specific uh, type of dietary regulation, but it's definitely unclean. And so what happens is, um, if you look at verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and went along eating, and when he comes to his mom and dad, he gives it to them and they eat it too, and then there's that line again, he does not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. And so, Samson is kind of dancing in this gray area, kind of like, oh, this rule wasn't given to me. Uh, but in reality, he's actually breaking the vow of the Nazarite. And so, what's supposed to happen according to this vow? And let me quiz everybody, what's supposed to happen if he breaks the vow? He's got to cut his hair off. But what happens if he cuts his hair is he knows he's not going to be strong anymore. And so he decides, I'm going to keep the hair on there. So the story continues on, and I'm going to come back to that in just a bit. Um, Samson's mom and dad organized a wedding for uh, Samson, and uh, if you look at verse 12, or excuse me, verse uh, 10, it says his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast. So the person who starts this feasting is actually Samson. Now, if you look at the Hebrew word, um, or translation of the word feast, it's actually translated drink. Just to drink. And whenever I usually think of feast, I think of food, right? Oh, I'm going to feast. Um, but in the Hebrew language, when you feast, you're going to drink a lot. And uh, there's a part of me that wants to give Samson the benefit of the doubt and think, maybe they're just drinking lots of water, and that way you know, they're being healthy. But I just, I, probably not. And so Samson instigates this uh, festival of drinking, if you will, in preparation of his wedding. And so if you look here... He's basically broken all the rules that were given to him, and then some. And so, um, yeah, he chooses not to cut his hair, he has this feast, and what he does is he thinks about the lion and the honey and thinks, hey, I can capitalize on this. I'm going to tell a riddle to the people that have come to the wedding. If they can figure out the riddle, um, I'll give them 30 changes of clothing, and if they cannot figure out the riddle, they have to give me 30 changes of clothing. And so here's the riddle, verse 14. It says, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And so the answer would have been, oh, a lion and hun- uh, honeybees inside of a lion. 
And so uh, the story goes um, that he is given 30 companions. And the story doesn't say who gave him 30 companions, but he's given 30 friends from uh, the Philistines, and they're having this party, and they can't figure out the riddle, and they think, oh, if we don't figure this out, we have to give Samson a clothing, a piece of clothing from the, each of us, and we don't want to do that. So they threaten uh, Samson's wife, and she gets the answer from him, and she tells the answer to uh, the companions, and Samson is just furious. He's furious, and he gets so upset that he leaves. So, there's a pause in the story between chapter 14 and chapter 15. And technically, what should have happened here in the story is that Samson should have cut his hair. And here's what it would have done. Samson has broken the vow of the Nazarite, and he does not want to make himself vulnerable. And if he would have cut his hair, it would have made him uh, vulnerable, and it would have made him very dependent, because he would have realized, uh, the strength that I have doesn't come from me, it actually it comes from God. And oftentimes, it's our talents, it's our giftedness, it's the things that we do that are socially acceptable, where people see us and think, man, that person just has it together. And there are many times where I meet people from week to week, and I think, man, that person just has it together, because... They're so good at what they do. And it's oftentimes that our abilities can sometimes mask the heart reality of what's going on between us and God. And there's this issue of morality because Samson is given a gray area. And it's sometimes in that gray area where your motives can be hidden and you can justify anything that you do. And so Samson is here. He's like, I don't need to cut my hair even though technically he has broken the vow. And he thinks... I'm so attached to my abilities, and if I get rid of my abilities, then what do I have? Then he would be in a place where he would have to be honest with God and realize, God, there are some things that I have to work through in my heart with you. And so, um, in the midst of that, Samson would have had to go through the rigorous uh, regulations of going to the sanctuary, giving a sacrifice. But it's in the process of giving that sacrifice that Samson would have actually been reminded of the forgiveness that God has for him. It's in taking away his talents and his giftedness that he would feel insecurity, but it's at that moment where God could have given him security in the sense of, listen, regardless of what you're able to do, I genuinely love and care for you, and this sacrifice is to remind you of that very, very fact. And um, what Samson needs, he refuses, and he, cho- he chooses not to cut his hair. So here's what happens instead. If you look at chapter 15, Samson chooses to follow his own actions. Now, there's this text in the Bible, it's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and I'll just recite it to you. It just says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not unto your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And so the vow of the Nazarite was supposed to communicate to God, God, You guide and direct my paths. You teach me what is right and wrong. You control my life. And in the midst of doing that, when Samson practiced morality, it was supposed to give him a sense of his mission. Because Samson would then be faithful, he would keep his strength, and then he would go and free Israel. And instead of being in that place where he 
is able to hear what God wants him to do, he takes matter into his own hands, and as a result, his ways are not established. And here's what happens. Chapter 15, Samson, in verse 1, it says, After a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, Let me go into my wife and in her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Now picture being Samson. Samson doesn't think to himself, I miss my wife. I need to spend time with my wife and show her that I love her. One day he's just kind of thinking, oh, yeah, I have a wife. And maybe that day or that morning his body produced a little bit extra testosterone and he's thinking, I am going to see my wife. And that's kind of why he goes and sees his wife, right? And so he knocks on the door and the dad comes up and he says, listen, you left and you were so angry. I gave your wife to one of the companions that, were at, that was at your wedding party. And as a result, Samson is furious. So he goes and he catches 300 foxes. He ties fire torches to, um, he, he attaches torches to their tails and he lets them go in the wheat fields. There, there was like a brief moment where, where the American part of me and the Australian part of me was conflicted because for you guys, torches, I mean, for us, torches are, so, Samson has torches and they go out into the field and the, and the foxes destroy the wheat fields and the, and the Philistines are so upset that they figure out, they ask, who's, who's done this? And they realize, oh, it was the guy that killed the lion with his bare hands or oh, it was the guy that went and killed 30 people and they realize we probably shouldn't mess with him. And so they go and they kill um, his, his ex-wife and his ex-father-in-law. And at this, he gets so, so upset. And here is such a good example of, of what Samson's actions lead to because rather than allowing God to lead in his life, he decides, I want to be my own leader. And that pride leads to his own sense of justice and it leads to this cycle of revenge and there's only death, pain, and suffering um, at the end of this. And so there's this uh, comment here, there's a, uh, I didn't write the author, uh, but he just summarizes this whole story so well, and he writes this, the Philistines want Samson for slaughtering their own people. But he had done this because they had killed his wife and father-in-law. But they had done this because he had burned their fields. But he had done this because his father-in-law had given away his wife. But he had done this because Samson had gotten angry and left. But he had done this because his wife had given the riddle's answer to her kinsmen. But she had done this to avoid being burnt up by them. So my question is, well, whose fault is it? And if you keep going around and around and around, you realize everybody actually has a reason to be upset. But somebody has to stop that cycle. And the answer really is, one of the answers is in Samson cutting his hair and just saying, I need to take a step back, otherwise this is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And instead, he takes matters into his own hands and this vicious cycle continues on. So instead of thoughtful reflection, confession, submission, freedom and direction that could have taken place, there's anger, revenge, death, isolation and frustration. And this is revealed in that Samson runs away after this and he hides in a cave on his own. So, I'm just going to pause here and uh, I've got about 10 minutes left and so I want to be conscious of my time. Um, this cycle repeats itself over and over and over in this story. 
And uh, at the end of this story, Samson never learns from his lessons and he ends up getting betrayed and uh, his secret is found out that his strength lies in his hair. His hair gets cut. And if you go to Judges chapter 16, and I just want to highlight a few things. If you look at verse... Uh, 16 verse 1 it says now Samson went to Geza and saw a harlot there and went into her and so once again he has this problem of seeing things he wants it he's like I just want it and then he does it. he does whatever he wants and if you look and jump to verse 21 it says then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes once he gets caught and so Samson has an eye problem that he sees whatever he wants and then he actually ends up losing his eyes and it's a human it's just a result, I think it's like a universal principle that when it comes to selfishness, the thing that we cherish the most is actually the thing that destroys us and it's the thing that we end up losing. And there's just this, it's, it's just a part of, of life. It's like this uh, universal principle, if you will. And so Samson loses his eyes and he gets brought to the temple and there's this temple uh, dedicated to a god named Dagon. And ironically, Dagon is the wheat god of the Philistines. And so Samson has just destroyed all the wheat in, in uh, the Philistines' land, and the Philistines kind of think, ah, we're going to bring you to the temple of Dagon. Our God is greater than, than you, even if you've slaughtered so many of us. And so they bring him to Dagon, and here's near the end of the story, and I want to bring your attention to verse 24. It says, When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they had said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. And in this praise to Dagon, there are five first-person pronouns. And all of those pronouns have to deal with self. And their worship of Dagon centered around their needs, what they wanted. And when they uh, sing this praise, they're saying, Ah, God brought you to us, our God. Very self-centered. Now, if you jump to verse 28, this is the last prayer that Samson prays. And here's what it says. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may be one, I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And if you count the number of first-person pronouns in Samson's last prayer, it's the exact same number. And the very thing that motivates and drives the Philistines is the very same thing that motivates and drives Samson. It's the sense of self-serving type of religion. And in the end, there's no difference between uh, Samson's worship and the worship of the Philistines. And so, uh, what the vow of the Nazarite is supposed to do for Samson, it does absolutely nothing, really. There's this quote that um, no other deliverer in the book of Judges matches Samson's potential his strength, his wit, his giftedness. Yet in spite of all these advantages and special attention, he accomplishes less on behalf of his own people than any of his predecessor uh, delivers. Samson is the last recorded judge in the book of Judges. And so where Samson is supposed to take the vow of the Nazarite and where Samson is supposed to be this example of a giver, an example of who God is, he is a self-seeking taker. You know, there are some interesting parallels between Samson's life and the life of Jesus. For example, Mary has never had children. God sends an angel and says, uh, Mary, you're going to have a child. And she gives birth to Jesus. 
Samson's mother is barren. She's never had children before. And an angel comes and miraculously says, you're going to have this child. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Samson takes the Nazarite vow. Jesus says right before he leaves, um, I will not partake of this, uh, this cup of wine until I meet you in heaven. And Jesus himself kind of takes this vow of the Nazarite and abstains from, uh, abstains from uh, grape juice uh, or wine. And so... Um, also, Samson was supposed to take the vow of the Nazarite and abstain from uh, anything that was related to the vine. Uh, and finally, uh, Jesus accomplished more good in his death than he did in his life. More people have come to believe the gospel. More people have been touched by the, uh, by the story of Jesus. Post-Jesus' life, same with Samson. The Bible ends this story by saying that Samson killed more people in his death than he did in his life. And so there's this, there are these parallels. And what Samson was supposed to do was to be able to communicate the very message of what it's like to have a life that's completely dedicated to God. And he actually drops the ball on this. And so there's a, there's a bit of a tragedy in this, in this story. But here's where it comes to us. Um, God also calls us not necessarily to take the vow of the Nazarite where we're not allowed to cut our hair and drink grape juice and whatever have you. But there's a sense where God wants each and every one of us to experience not just failure, um, but also victory, where we are able to partake with Christ and say, I take you, and not only do I receive your forgiveness, I'm actually believing in your ways and following your footsteps and accepting your truth and living out the principle of giving in my own life, just in the way that you have given yourself to me. And so God calls us to... um, a specific vow to him as well. And there are moments where we fail and the greatest thing that we can do is to so-called get haircuts. And it's the place where we become vulnerable with God and we are real with God. And regardless of what may seem uh, good on the outside where people think, man, you just, you've got it together, where we realize, you know, inside, there are things that I need to work through with God. And to take that time apart in safe environments to be vulnerable and to let God minister to us and then to enter into communion with Him so that we can experience that grace. You know, Samson cut his hair too late and instead of him cutting his hair in a safe place, somebody else cut his hair in an unsafe place and he lost his eyes as a result. And so I think there's this really important lesson of being able to be vulnerable with God in the quietness of each day or each moment where we really need connection with God. And I hope that in those moments you can really, really connect with God in a meaningful way. So may God bless you, and I look forward to hearing from you around the tables.